Oh, happy birthday, scum of the earth. As you teeter on the brink of adolescence and pubescence, let me, uh, as a church, as a, as a corporate body, I'm guessing this means we're going to be developing some kind of spiritual acne in the next year. That's what I'm guessing. Our corporate voice will begin to crack. And, uh, you know, we'll walk awkwardly in high heels for the... <laughs> Whatever. It's a church we probably need braces as well. So, so yeah, I, I'll call scum of the earth a God thing. Uh, never expected to be here 12 years ago, really. Uh, I didn't think this far ahead. I know that... Uh, the people who were with us at the time, uh, Deva being one of them and uh, Leonore being another, who were in my living room 12 years ago on uh, Groundhog's Day, I don't think we pictured literally thousands of people wafting through scum of the earth over the last dozen years in a, a, a building campaign, money falling out of the sky from Jesus. Um, the twists and turns in the road. I, we just, I mean, just honestly, just could not see this this far down. It's been a God thing. You guys, I mean, it's kind of a vernacular for young Christendom, isn't it? The God thing. I, I've heard that that phrase when somebody you know comes into town and they land a job that's just the greatest job in the world, never thought they'd ever get it, and they always say, you know, it was just a total God thing. Or they're looking for that special someone and trying and trying hard to find a special someone and never happens. And then, you know, almost like a lightning bolt out of a clear blue sky, you know, they meet somebody and fall in love. And next thing you know, it's termed a what? God thing. Yeah, you got it. Scum of the Earth was like that. It was a God thing. And... um I uh, was preparing this message. We're talking about the planting of the church in Philippi. Philippi is a city in northern Macedonia, and it's named for, for King Philip. King Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. And honestly, the planting of the church in Philippi was a God thing. <laughs> you know, Paul really didn't plan to go there. And so I thought, you know, given it's our birthday, given I never expected to plant a church with a bunch of 20-some-year-olds called Scum of the Earth, um, given that we're about to head into a whole series on the book of Philippians, I thought, let's take a look at a God thing in the Bible. And honestly, I think by the time we're done with this passage today, I think we'll know what the ingredients of a God thing are. So that's the title of the message, Ingredients of a God Thing. Um, I had a uh, brain, is either a brain flash or a brain fart. I'm not sure. Uh, I can't tell. But I was going through the points in my sermon, and I came up with this, this kind of parody of a whiskey label. <laughs> so I don't know if you have. Can you show that up there? 
I don't know when we're going to put it up there. There we go. Um, Dewar's Whiskey, you've probably seen that label, right? Um, finest Scotch Whiskey. I thought it was really kind of a divine appointment because it's aged 12 years, right? That's a God thing right there. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I changed the label around a little bit in Photoshop. So it says, it says DeWoos because that fits my sermon, uh, finest God thing. And let me go over. So every one of those letters stands for something else. And so um, the first part of a God thing is that it's a divine encounter, D-E, divine encounter. And so if you uh, want to take a look at Acts chapter 16, you got a Bible, open it up to chapter 16, verse 6. If not, it should be up there on the wall. And I'm going to kind of stop and start to go through this. Paul, that's the Apostle Paul, and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Messiah, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them, so they passed by Messiah and went down to Troas. These are some of the most troubling verses I've ever read in the Bible. Because you have the Apostle Paul, we talked about him last week, this dynamic conversion experience, right? And he, some time has gone by, he is full of uh, Holy Spirit power, knowledge of the Word, passion and zeal for Jesus, and he just wants to spread the gospel every place he can. And so he and his companions, he's, he's gotten some people to come along with him, in verse 6 it says, and um, they traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, but the Holy Spirit stopped them from preaching the word in the province of Asia. That has got to be frustrating. You are going around doing God's will, and you go to this other place, and all of a sudden the door is slammed in your face. I don't know what happened. It gets worse. They came to the border of Messiah, and they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. You go, wait a minute, Jesus. I am trying to do your will. Remember, you said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what I'm doing. And now, you know, I go here and here, it's fine. But now I can't go here and I can't go there. And you're going like, what is the deal? I would be upset. Because I would have my heart set on spreading the gospel the way that I felt it should be spread. But it seems that it being a good idea is not enough. It's got to be a God idea as well. It can't just be a good idea. It's got to be a God idea as well. Planning a church can't just be a good idea you had one day. It's got to be a God idea as well. Moving to a new city. Taking a new job. Dating a new boy or dating a new girl. Can't just be a good idea. It's got to be a God idea as well. And will God come through? That's the big question. 
Let's go on. Verse 9, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Duh. <laughs> I'm going, you know, go to this door, it's shut, go to that door, it's shut, all the windows are closed, and all of a sudden, the garage door opens. And uh, you're going, oh, huh. God must want us to go through here. You know, sometimes God encounters, divine encounters are, are so obvious, you can't miss them. I remember, uh, and if those of you who've read Pure Scum, you already know this story, but it was probably uh, the 1980s. I was a youth pastor volunteer uh, in Toledo, Ohio, frustrated because I couldn't be in ministry, but was working, I uh, think I might have been working at the steel mill at that particular time. And um, I took a bunch of uh, kids to a, a Christian rock show, because that's what you do when you're a youth pastor. And uh, so we went to this hall, and there's other people there, and, you know, the kids were, you know, at the front, and, you know, but this time I'm a young guy, probably in my late 20s, you know, and uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was the weirdest thing. I'm just sitting in the back of the room. There's, like, nobody around me in the front rows, nobody in behind me, just by myself, zoning out, getting some time away from the craziness of, of youth ministry. While the band is up there playing, I forget what city they were from. And all of a sudden, I heard this voice in my head, but it was loud. It wasn't like a passing thought. I've had those thousands of times. It was a voice, and it spoke clearly. And the voice said to me, someday, a band like that is going to come out of your ministry. End of transmission. It was like... You know, I mean, it used to be back when I was young, you know, after about 2 a.m., the TV screen would go just blank. There would be this, this fuzzly, crackly kind of snowstorm of a picture on the television set. That's what my mind was like. All of a sudden, the screen goes blank, and these big, bold white letters come across the black screen saying, someday a band like that will come out of your ministry, and then... Back to the snowstorm. And I remember just being stunned going, was that the pizza I had for lunch talking to me? Like, I, and, and I, even though I knew there was nobody around, I literally did a 360. I did, you know, nobody around me. And then I'm left going, God, is that you? Because if that's you, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> I didn't know. And honestly, you never know if it's a divine encounter until it kind of all pans out, really. If it was God, it happens. If it wasn't God, it doesn't. <laughs> the proof is in the pudding. And so I'd watch a couple kids start a garage band, right? Never gets out of the garage. Somebody else has desires to be a Christian singer. Nothing ever happens. They have their adolescent spiritual falling away. That's not going to happen. After a while, he's going, oh, well, 
Stick that in the shelf in the back of your mind and go on. Forward a dozen years later, I'm now 40. I met a couple guys at Corona Presbyterian Church where I was the young adult and singers, singles director. One guy's a bass player in a band, another guy's a sound guy. Their names were Keith Herrig and Larry Landis. And because I'm the young adult's director, I make sure to meet them, say hello. We're talking. They were doing a band, Eximator, I think the name of it was. Uh, but they had a side project. They were calling it Five Iron Frenzy. Um, but they had a show coming up. I said, well, I'll come to your show. They never expect me to come to their show. Why wouldn't I go to their show? I show up to show. South Fellowship had this little hall down on Federal. I don't know. what. Anyway, the room was literally bouncing with the energy. I found out later from the guy who ran those shows that they actually had to take two-by-fours and prop up the joists in the floor below that little former church building that is now a youth center and concert venue. Take a couple guys from Corona Press, young adults with me. They were only a couple. One guy's name was Jesus Cruz. We called him JC. Other guy uh, was Dennis Culp. And I knew these guys pretty well, so we're in the back. We're listening. And Five Iron Frenzy was not complete at all. Um, and I elbowed Dennis. And I go, hey, Dennis, as I screamed into his, into his ear above the music. There's no trombone player. And he yells back in my ear, Mike. Trombone gigs are hard to come by. After the concert, I am looking all around for Dennis. JC and I are, are scouring the place. Where's Dennis? Well, ends up Dennis is talking with members of the band. He comes back into my car all excited because, hey, I got an audition with the band. I go, really? He goes, yeah. I'm going, dude, you're probably the most musical guy they've ever seen. <laughs> I mean... Dennis is amazing. He ended up becoming the band's primary arranger, um, obviously uh, wrote music. He was their business manager, trombone player. He was the missing piece, I think, in the whole deal. And as soon as that puzzle piece was in place, the band just took off. And next thing I knew, they're coming to me going, Mike, Mike, we got this contract from this, this company called Flying Tart Records. We don't know anything about them. Can you look over the contract? Do you know anybody? So I contact some lawyers I know in the music business. Next thing I know, I'm having meetings in my house. And as Leonor used to tell me, Mike, we're the only band I've ever met out there that has a mission statement, three, six, and 12-month goals every year, like... And um, everybody had a job to do. And all of a sudden, those words came back to me. Someday, a band like this is going to come out of your ministry. It was a God thing, you know? It was just a God thing. Let me tell you another story. Scum of the Earth had no 
such auspicious or powerful encounters that birthed this church. I mean, you want to know how scum of the earth came to be 12 years ago? I was out of a job. I got fired by the incoming senior pastor at Corona Press, who's no longer there. And um, I needed a job. And, and frankly, I was going, hmm, let's see, I got offered a job at McLean Bible Chapel in McLean, Virginia. Their young adult singles group there is probably four to 500 people. My salary there would have been probably more than double what I was making at Corona. I got offered a job in Philadelphia at a Presbyterian, an old August Presbyterian church there. Um, but the problem was, is that God was tugging in my heart with this group of young skater punks that were hanging around Five Iron Frenzy in their Bible study. And I was in turmoil. I went on a private prayer retreat to try and work through this whole thing. Like, God, what are you saying to me? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Because I've got four children, one of which is about to enter college. I've got a mortgage. I'm 45, almost 46 years old at this particular point. There was no voice from heaven. All there was was a little tugging on my heart, a little whisper in my ear, coming through not only my own private prayer time, but through trusted advisors and counselors like Dr. James Means from Denver Seminary. Sometimes the divine encounter doesn't blow you away. It just doesn't. It comes in your quiet time with a cup of coffee. You're walking across the street and you kind of hear this little whisper in your mind or you feel a thought rolling around your heart. But God, things always start with a divine encounter. Always. Because otherwise it wouldn't just be a God thing. It would only be a good thing. Let's go on. Divine encounters. I got another one coming up here. Verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. <laughs> this is. <laughs> Can you imagine these guys? They get this giant commission from the Holy Spirit, right, to go to Macedonia. Here they are in the prominent city in Macedonia. And, you know, they walk into town, they just start looking around. Where do you want to go, Paul? I don't know. I'm not getting anything. You getting anything? <laughs> no. Well, there might be some people down by the river praying. People tend to pray by rivers. 
okay, let's go down there and we'll see. God had it all set up. Little did they know. On the Sabbath, they went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. A divine encounter with a woman named Lydia. Now, I've said this before to people privately, probably never from the microphone. I just think women are naturally more spiritual than men. Um, call me a sexist, if you will. Guys, you can, you know, take me out and beat me up. But I, I honestly think women are more spiritual than men. In all the places that are having churches tonight, I'll bet you $1,000 there are more women at church tonight than men tonight. Men are doing something else tonight. You know, worshiping the skin of a pig or something. So, I'm not surprised that a woman is the first convert in Philippi. It's like God prepared her sovereignly for them to meet her at that particular point, even though they didn't know they were going to meet her there. And Lydia ends up becoming like the host of the church that meets in that area. It's really an awesome story. It goes on. But I want to note this. That the next stage of Paul's journey in terms of this whole God thing is what I would call a willing Obedience. So in the DeWoos label, you've got D-E-W-O. DeWoos. The willing obedience part. They got up. They moved. They did something. I mean, when you get the divine encounter, whether it's a whisper or whether it's a burning bush, you've got to do something. You've got to obey you got to act. It's not just enough if you want a God thing to happen in your life for you just to have the encounter with God and feel all warm and fuzzy. You've got to do something. God is not capricious in his appearances or his interactions with human beings. He always has a goal in mind. It's not just about the being a Christian is about the doing of a Christian when it comes to the Lord. You can't separate faith from works. They're one and the same.
So what I need for us to do as a church to go on to be a God thing here at Scum of the Earth is for us to continue to be willingly obedient, to willingly obey God when he tells us to do something. Like what if God speaks a word that rocks your world, like change your major or change your job? This job that makes lots of money, that's really easy for you to do, and next thing you know, you're being called to something else in another sector that pays less money and is harder for you to do. If you don't act, the God thing will not happen. I mean... Maybe you open your Bible and you're reading in 1 Corinthians about sexual immorality and the Holy Spirit whispers to you, I want you to not have any more sexual encounters until you're married. It's a whisper. It's a divine encounter. Will you be willingly obedient? Would you refrain? It gets hard then, doesn't it? Because you get lonely, you know? If you had a divine encounter and you knew that this person was supposed to be your spouse for the rest of your life and then the difficulties come, will you be obedient to keep on going with that promise that you made in front of God, in front of the church, in front of your friends? Look, I've talked about this in times past, not so much in recent years, but it's pretty much a God thing for me to ask my wife to marry me. I won't go into details, but it was. Staying married to her when it would have been easier to walk out because we were both unhappy, was nothing but willful obedience on both of our parts. I mean, those of you who know Mary and I, and you laugh at how we interact, and, you know, sometimes we're cute, and sometimes you just shake your head. Um, It's a God thing that we're together. And if we hadn't been obedient... you wouldn't be seeing that. Let's go on. Once when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. This is interesting, folks. This girl has an evil spirit. 
that predicts the future. And her masters, because she's a slave, make lots of cash from her fortune telling. They would be out of business if she was wrong 100% of the time. You ever think about that? Furthermore, she sees Paul and his companions, and she starts telling the truth about them, that these guys are servants of the Most High God, and they're going to tell you how to be saved. It's like those demons when they encounter Jesus. What do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Our time has not yet come. You know? Are you here to destroy us before our time? Of course, Jesus' answer in terms of his actions was, damn straight, right, come out of that man, or come out of that little girl, or come out of that woman. No different here. I stop here momentarily to let you know that every demonic thing is not 100% evil, wrong. Well, it's 100% evil and wrong. But what I'm trying to say is, is that it will, the devil's not stupid. He will mix some truth in with the lies. I mean, you wouldn't go to the astrology charts if they were 100% wrong all the time. You wouldn't go to the palm reader, the tarot card reader. You wouldn't go to the fortune teller with the crystal ball. You wouldn't do those things. You wouldn't go to the seances if they didn't spill some truth along with the deception. All right, that doesn't mean it's good. It's like the opposite of a God thing. It's a devil thing. But I just wanted to make you aware that... That's the way things are, so you're not deceived. But anyway, here's the crazy thing. This girl follows around Paul and Silas and these guys for days, and Paul doesn't do a thing. <laughs> Finally, he's had enough. This is what it says. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Could it be that God uses our own personalities, our own likes, our own dislikes, our own frustrations, our own annoyances, our own excitement, our own passion to do his will in Jesus' name? And the answer I get from this little interlude is yes. Paul got annoyed. Why he didn't do this days before, I don't know. Just, again, these are for free, folks. <laughs> Not even part of the main point of the story. When her owners, verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrate and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city in an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, was that the real problem? Absolutely not. 
The real problem was is they were being hurt in the pocketbook, but they couldn't come to the authorities with that. So they made something up the authorities might actually pay attention to. It's kind of like, I don't know, if you've ever been in a job where, you know, they hate your guts just because they don't like your personality, you know, they don't like you're a Christian or something, they will find other reasons to fire you. You know, the reason they give is not always the reason. It just isn't, especially when it comes to Christians. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Oh, boy. This is a God thing gone terribly bad, isn't it? Big call, willing obedience, And then the last two letters are U.S. undergo suffering. The woosh, D-E-W-O-U-S, undergo suffering. This is the finest God thing and how it's made. You have to undergo suffering if it's a God thing. If you don't suffer, it may not be a God thing. Although Jesus was his son, Hebrews 5.8 says, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. A servant is not above his master. A student is not above his teacher. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, Jesus said in so many words. And this is just the reality of it, folks. There's a cost involved to being involved in a God thing. I mean, I am not surprised that scum of the earth has endured the kind of bitter words that have come at us from places like Westward from places like the corner, from various pastors and churches all around the country. I'm just not surprised. Why? Because it's part of a God thing is to suffer. It just is. I mean, the fact that You know, Mary and I went into financial debt. Not surprising when scum of the earth was getting going. It's not surprising. How do these guys respond to the suffering? This is where it gets really crazy. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Let's hope they were listening with appreciation. 
Who knows? We'll find out when we get to heaven how good or bad it was. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. This is another God thing. You're in the inner cell, like way in the middle of the prison. You're in stocks and your chains come loose. What is your first thought? Praise Jesus, he led us free because we had a divine encounter. We were willingly obedient, and now we get to get out of jail. That's what you're thinking, right? God's on our side. (laughs) But they don't do that. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, if a jailer does this, a hardened, tough, jailer kind of dude, you know he's killing himself because his killing of himself will be a whole lot more pleasant than the authorities killing him, than his boss killing him. He wouldn't have to undergo the shame of living as a man who was in derelict of his duties. And so what do the Apostle Paul and Silas do? They shout, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Amazing. Amazing. This is almost like a repeat of what happened with Lydia by the river, except it's the jailer in the jail. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. They had a church service that night. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, which is in Thyatira, by the way, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. This is the story of the planting of the church in Philippi. A God thing. He starts with a woman who deals in purple cloth. And the story ends with a hardened, tough jailer who falls to his knees in reverence of God. Three things happen. There's a divine encounter. 
There's willing obedience in the part of the apostles. And then they undergo suffering. That's all part of a God thing. That's all part of a God thing. The amazing thing is that, uh, let's have the DeWoos label back up there if you could, please. I just spent so much time on that when I should have been, you know, fine-tuning the sermon a bit, bit, bit more. You know, I really want scum of the earth to continue to be a God thing. We're at our 12th birthday. By 12 years old, a lot of churches are, you know, losing their initial passion and verve. I want to close with this little arc that I've read about. And it's kind of the lifespan of a church. It's a bell curve. And usually starts with a messenger, messengers. Twelve years ago, Scum of the Year started with about a dozen messengers who had an idea that uh, church should be a comfortable place where they could be with their friends. And usually, uh, some kind of ministry is born from that message. And it kind of gains steam and gains steam until finally somewhere near the top of the curve it becomes a ministry. Scum of the earth may be somewhere on the upside of that curve. We're a full-fledged ministry. We've got a logo. We've got a building. Come on, what more do you need? But this is where the problem happens the downward side of the bell curve. The ministry stops being a ministry. It begins being a machine. We just do things the way we've always done them. We don't need to seek the Lord anymore. We don't need any more encounters with Jesus. Obedience is really eh, a fait accompli because we're going to do what we've always done. It's a machine. And then it becomes a monument somewhere up midway down the backside of the curve. You know, and we have testimonials and birthday parties and annual reports and, you know, we have videos that are made and we just kind of just say, oh, look how wonderful this is, this monument to what God has done in our lives. And it ends up at the bottom of the curve being a mausoleum. No life. Just pretty on the outside. No life on the inside. Messengers movement and ministry, machine on the backside, a monument that turns into a mausoleum. Let us never, ever stop looking for divine encounters. Even now, the staff and the council are trying to re-examine the vision for scum of the earth. Where does God want us to go? What does he want us to do? How might we follow him? What is he whispering to us? Is it the same thing he did 12 years ago or not? We're looking for divine encounters. We're looking for either a burning bush or a little tiny voice. Anything. 
And when we finally hear that voice or see that burning bush, the hope is, is that we will be obedient to follow what he has directed for the next 12 years. And we know that if we're doing the right stuff, we're going to have some suffering to undergo. We will. Because dead people have no enemies. It's only alive people who have enemies. So let's pray for scum of the earth for the next 12 years, okay? And we'll end right here. Heavenly Father, thank you for a dozen good years. We ask that you would grant us a dozen more full of life. Make these next 12 years, Lord, even more of a God thing than the first 12 were. All in the name of Jesus, in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen.